0: Hey guys, thanks for checking out today's message. We are so glad that you joined us. We consider resources like this one to be supplemental, so if you do not have a church home and you live in the Greater Savannah area, we would love to invite you to one of our locations. If you're blessed by today's message and would like to invest into the life and the ministry of City Church, you can do so by visiting our website, citychurch.life, and clicking give. Our hope is that you'll be blessed and encouraged as we dive into today's message. Ash Wednesday is uh, something that the, the church historically has practiced for a very long time and I grew up in uh, uh, a little bit more of charismatic circles and this was not something that was practiced within uh, the church uh, that I grew up in. However, I have always uh, had friends who uh, did participate. Uh, This is more than just a Catholic thing. Uh, I think probably a lot of people, including myself, at one point in life, just thought, you know, this is something that the inside the Catholic Church that they participate in. But it's really not. It's really a a a a major part of tradition. And so, therefore, uh, churches that uh, operate with a lot more tradition are more inclined to uh, take part in. Ash Wednesday. So we're going to talk a little bit about Ash Wednesday. uh, And uh, one of the more popular uh, passages to be taught on during this time is Psalm 51. And so we're going to get to Psalm 51 in just a moment. But the idea behind Ash Wednesday is that uh, it uh, represents a 40-day period or the lead into a 40-day period right up to Easter. So it begins with Ash Wednesday, it ends with Good Friday, and it is the beginning of a season that is called Lent. I am not going to sit up here and... Even try to make you think that I'm super intellectually schooled in the arena of all things Lent. I am not. Uh, I am a fan of understanding church tradition. Uh, uh, When we started City Church, uh, we uh, were talking with a guy one day and we were talking about the church and he was asking some questions and he Uh, ultimately said, uh, you know, I would never attend your church. And I said, no worries. I I would like to know why. And he said, I need to do church the way Jesus did with pews and stained glass. And I kind of had this moment in my mind of like, he doesn't really have like, good understanding of really how Jesus was probably doing church. It wasn't worth having a debate with him over because our goal is not to try to sway people, uh, uh, especially who are in churches, out of churches. We want them to be in a place where they're comfortable and worshiping Jesus, pursuing a relationship with him. Uh, But it does bring to the surface the fact that a lot of the things that we do are non-traditional in their in their own forms or capacities here at City Church, nothing that we do uh, and and, uh, would we argue would be uh, unbiblical. Uh, We want to do whatever is necessary short of sin of sharing the gospel in a way that's compelling to Uh, a generation, uh, but that doesn't discount what other churches might do, and so uh, there are some really great churches with some great leadership and pastors in this city uh, that operate very differently. I have the honor of being able to know some of them, grab lunch, pray with them, uh, have coffee, uh, and uh, uh, so I want to take opportunities when I can to learn more about why they do what they do, and so uh, tonight, we're just going to kind of... uh, jump a little bit into this. This is something that really you could spend the whole next 40 days uh, uh, reading about, studying on, meditating uh, through the entire process to probably get even a better picture. It has transformed its own identity throughout uh, its existence uh, and is something that Uh, has gone through phases. I was reading uh, what different ministers and different uh, uh, denominations have said about it, about uh, how uh, probably up until about two or three years ago, it was just something that people avoided altogether. They didn't want to wear ash on their face all day. It had really hit a decline. Uh, But our culture loves to jump into things that uh, seem odd and different. And so uh, by their own testament, like there's a resurgence of it. Everybody showing back up and wanting to be a part of an Ash Wednesday where they're coming into church and being a part of a service, getting marked with Ash, and uh, spending their day uh, walking around, engaging in the conversation. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being marked in a way that engages the conversation of the gospel. So. Psalm 51 is going to be our, uh, our passage to look at. There are a lot of reasons why the psalms are uh, heavily taught during this time of the year. Uh, uh, and even more so pointing directly to uh, the idea of uh, specifically Psalm 51. Uh, uh, there's something about uh, the psalms in general that uh, speak to, they, they, they connect us with people who we feel like we, we can relate with. Uh, there's something that's relatable about uh, the Psalms and the way that they're written uh, and if you've ever if you've never taken time to sit down and read through them, I, I would challenge you to do so. Uh, these are people who are writing about really raw emotions, experiences that they're going through, whether it's loss or love uh, in their own lives and they're writing about it in a way that uh, even thousands of years later, uh, it just we connect with it. it makes sense to us uh, and uh, uh, the the idea of uh, Ash Wednesday is around, uh, or, or the idea specifically about today leading into this lead up to Easter is about addressing shame in your life. And I, uh, several years ago, I really dealt with uh, the topic of shame uh, because it was something I dealt with in my own life. I was watching... Uh, it eat up people uh, that were attending the church, people who we were doing life with. And there, were, there was something that, that I kind of discovered in my time of like reflection on the idea of shame. And, and, and that is that shame has really two purposes. Uh, the first purpose, this is the one that we all get naturally. And that is uh, this idea that something that we have done... Uh, uh, has hurt somebody. It has brought embarrassment, uh, and what we want is we want that to be hidden. We want it to be covered up, right? And so, when we do something that is wrong and we have shame, uh, the the emotion, the burden that we're feel that we are feeling, what we want, our desire is that somebody would come and 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 take that. They would cover that up. But the other aspect of shame uh, that I discovered in that time period was that shame, shame not only makes us aware of our failure, right, but shame has this other effect, and that is it makes us aware of the one who has the capacity to cover it up. And so, so shame doesn't ju- isn't just this tool that the enemy gets to use, but it's also a tool that God... It, it, at the, at the exact same time is taking, taking it and saying, listen, the enemy, because sin entered the world, is trying to use shame to manipulate you, to mess with your emotions, to tear you down. And God's saying, and if you will just recognize my capacity to cover you, to fulfill, to fill you up, to cut that away, I'm here to do that. And so shame can and should bring us to a place of emotional hurt, but it should also be when we are believers it should be a connecting point that draws us in and says okay I recognize something's not right I need to go to the person who can fix it right that's what happens when we get sick we get sick we're running noses and we've got earaches and we go to the doctor and if we don't go to the doctor people around us are going why haven't you gone to the doctor I, the second I get sick, my, my wife starts on it. She's like, when are you setting your doctor's appointment? Can I set your doctor's appointment for you? You need to go to the doctor. Let's go to the doctor. She loves for me to go to the doctor. I hate going to the doctor. No offense to doctors in the house. But going to the doctor to me is not... I don't, I don't hate the, uh, what the doctor has to say or the process of the medicine. I hate the process to the doctor. Right? That is just not an enjoyable experience for me. But, but she's right. If I'm really sick... Going to the doctor is the best, uh, the, the quickest solution to finding health and healing. And and, and it's the same thing with shame, is, is that if we acknowledge that there's something broken, right, because that's, that's where shame rears its head is when we acknowledge that it's broken. If we will use that as a signifier to complete the cycle of giving it over to God and allowing him to do the work, then uh, uh, we will find ourselves in a, in a place of, of freedom. Now, I will say this. Shame reminds us that we are called to be exceptional that's that's really what it's doing that's why it's a shortcoming that's why there's a failure, a disconnect there is because we then recognize that we are living or acting just like anybody else and as believers we know deep inside of us as children of God, we know that we're created. For greater things. We have destiny and purpose. And when sin is in our lives and shame rears its head, its goal is to prevent us from destiny. And the only way that it can do that is if we're aware of the fact that it's preventing us from destiny. And so, I encourage you, as, as you live life, not to just wait for a moment like an Ash Wednesday, but I think it's good to take time in your life to just stop and focus and meditate and say, God, what is it in my life today that uh, you would point out that is a failure, a place where I am not striving or hitting that, that highest level that I can, and, and, and let's deal with that, right? And so today's kind of like the doorway into that season of Lent where you're going to spend time leading up to Easter, leading up to the resurrection, focusing on how can I be closer to Christ? How can I be set free in my own life, right? And so, uh, uh, yeah, so these two things, something in me needs to be covered, something has the ability to cover it, and that is Jesus Christ. From the cross, he now has paid the price, and I do not have to live in shame anymore. I have a covering. It's the exact same thing, right? So there was a temporary sacrifice that was made in the garden. Adam and Eve come out shameful of their own existence, right? They see themselves as needing clothing. There's a sacrifice that's made to cover them, cover their shame. Jesus comes on the cross, one last sacrifice Covering our shame, covering our guilt, and giving us the ability to experience freedom. So uh, when uh, somebody goes in for a service on Ash Wednesday, they will have the ashes uh, uh, marked into the shape of a cross on their head, and then the person who is doing that, the pastor, the priest, will say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. And, and And the reason for this idea of thinking about mortality is that there isn't a much more powerful tool to put in front of you to help you have the the nudge you need to make things right. When you begin to think about the fact that you have mortality, that tomorrow uh, could be the last day, that a day is coming where that is, it not only pushes you to make things right with God, but it also is an incentive to make things right with your brothers and sisters, the people you do life with. As Christians, we are called to be not just in right, reconciled relationship with God, but to be in right, reconciled relationship with the people we do life with. And that's really important for us as Christians. And I think that this is one, one reason, and we can unpack this idea for a very long time, but one of the reasons why within the church we are ineffective sometimes at sharing the gospel is because we, are, we, we figure out how to reconcile with Jesus, but we don't take it serious to reconcile with our brothers and sisters. And so we're okay with living with enmity and and strife and discord when it comes to the people around us, and it really takes some maturity to go, you know what, I need to be the bigger person here and help to lay this down. And so this is the whole idea of, listen, I would not want to be remembered this way if tomorrow were my last day. And so they'll say this, it creates a point of reflection. So... Uh, uh, why the Psalms? Ephesians 5, and I didn't put all the scriptures up here, uh, uh, but I'm going to read them to you. I just want you to listen. Ephesians 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you talk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the writer says, be careful, make sure that the things you speak are, are with wisdom. Verse 16, making the best use of time because the days are evil, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And listen to what it says. It says, but be filled with the Spirit. And this is about reconciling with each other. It says, addressing one another in Psalms. And hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is what it says. It says that the Psalms are one of the tools that we have to be able to use to communicate with each other as a form of creating reconciliation and accountability. And so the Psalms have a very specific place in relationship or in life, just like singing a hymn or singing a song of praise and worship. And so we come in here on Sunday mornings and on a night like tonight, and we're blessed because we've got... Great leaders like Dylan, they get up and pour their heart and energy with the band. These guys, they they come in, they lead, they give you the opportunity to step into the presence of God, to have a tangible connection, right, through song. And the writer here says that it's not just in singing songs to each other or in a group, but there is a tremendous amount of power in being familiar with the Psalms. Uh, In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus very specifically talking about uh, the the prerequisites or the prophecies that had been laid out there in order for him to be able to say I am. And am the Christ, right? He says it wasn't just those prophecies that were given in the, in, in, through, through the Old Testament prophets, but even those things which were spoken of in the Psalms. They, they, they matter. They are a part of identifying with who Christ is. So the Psalms are relevant for a lot of reasons uh, because they are uh, written expressions of people who have gone through hard times. Something that we connect with, people who have experienced heartaches, people who have experienced anguish, people who have experienced despair, people who have experienced joy, people who have experienced fulfillment. The Psalms are filled with people who are experiencing life and all of its emotions. So a lot of times we think in terms of uh, righteous living and we think in terms of is God okay with this or is he okay with that? What does God have to say about how I manage my money? And then we want to hear a teaching on money, right? And then we go, well, what does God have to say about uh, how I raise my children? And so we want to hear some specific teaching on children. And what does God have to say about how I buy property? And we want to hear a specific teaching on that. And does God care about the type of language that I use, right? And, and, and yet when we dive into the Psalms and Scripture's pushing us to, to the Psalms, uh, it, it's interesting, the, every book of the New Testament except to quote the Psalms, right? That's how, how significant the Psalms are, and yet they are r- these written, oftentimes, poems that deal with the emotions that people are experiencing, and so uh, the early church fathers they said you know what we need to take uh, uh, we need to take time every every year and focus on the emotions that we are experiencing we need to take time and focus on what it looks like to think about all of what we are feeling and learn how to use those emotions to connect us back to the father And so the Psalms are really powerful this way when we're dealing with a widespread amount of emotion. So if you are in your life, one of the challenges I would put to you is if you're walking through a moment of despair, then turn to the Psalms. What do the writers there have to say about despair? What you will find is that in their despair, they are connecting to God. They are figuring out how to do that because they are filled with the hope that God's better is soon to arrive. It's a common theme. God's better, whatever it is. There's something better and it's soon coming. And so I can, in the midst of heartache and pain and suffering, or even in seasons of joy, I can turn and go, there's something better coming. And it resonates with us. It resonates in our hearts. It's not a complicated idea, but it's not one that we tend to turn to. We're going to talk about David for just a quick moment. David, uh, who wrote Psalm uh, 51, uh, David as a young man is, uh, receives a call uh, to be ultimately the king. Uh, interesting points here, uh, David is a, a shepherd, uh, spending his life watching uh, and attending to the, the flock uh, that his dad owns. Uh, when the uh, prophet comes to identify a new king, it, 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 it's, it's really like, it's a, it's a hard thing here, but even his own dad passes him up, right? His dad lines up his brothers and says, surely it's one of these, but it wasn't. You see, you see God saw beyond that and around that and said, what about this young man? Now, what are the reasons why he passed him up? Probably a plethora. It was not because he didn't love him. We don't see any indication of that. But he had older brothers who were more accomplished and in our own reasoning, we, we tie comp- accomplishment sometimes to the expectation that God's doing something instead of just looking at raw potential like God will look at raw potential. And, and I'll tell you, like, like raw potential is so much more effective sometimes than an individual who is accomplished and they're accomplished in doing things a certain way. And sometimes that way is the wrong way and it got them to a certain distance, but it's not going to get them all the way. And so God identifies this in this young man. He goes from shepherding to the king's courts where he is loved and he is protected to being on the run, fearing for his life while the king wants him dead. He ends up hiding in a cave and then goes from there to becoming the king and experiencing unprecedented success. Like when you talk about... Uh, the the Israelites, when you talk about Israel, you talk about the Jews, and you talk about kings, David is at the forefront, right? David is not the first king, but David is the greatest king. They see David as the example for what a king should look like. We find uh, that even Jesus references David as being a man after the father's own heart. Now, He ends up in a place where he falls into sin. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story, but we'll just quickly recap. David ends up, uh, because of his success, there's less and less need for him on the battlefield. The battles are happening so quickly, they're always winning, there's not a need, and so he becomes complacent, he stays at home, and one day he sees a woman bathing, he thinks she is beautiful, she is married, and he takes her and he sleeps with her. Now, there's nothing that's okay with this, right? I, I have people all the time say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, you could have a bunch of wives. Like, there's no scripture that says you could have a bunch of wives, right? That was never an okay thing. They just, people just lived in sin. Right? Do you know anybody that just lives in sin? Right? You wouldn't go just because they say they love Jesus and they live in sin that God's just okay with their sin. Right? So it's, it's sin. And there are many times where scripture rears its head up and says this isn't okay. But David takes this woman. He sleeps with her. And something bad happens. She gets pregnant. And why is this bad? Well, this is bad because her husband is off at war fighting for the king. Okay, and so he's off at war fighting for the king, which means that he couldn't be sleeping with his wife. And if you don't know how this works, we have established I am not the one to teach you. Uh, and and David David says, okay, you've got to go and send for him. He's got to come home because he's got to sleep with his wife, so that he will think that this is his baby. And that man comes home, and that man, uh, uh, that man does not go to his house and sleep with his wife. Instead, he is a man that is so admirable, he goes and sleeps at the door of the king. And in 2 Samuel 11, verse uh, 11, look at what it says. It says, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Right? This is high honor. Like I I just want you to get a picture that Uriah has tremendous respect for David tremendous respect for David, and David has impregnated his wife. And instead of that stirring David to a place of repentance or that stirring David to a place where he experiences the shame and says, this was wrong, i got to make this right, what he does is he has Uriah sent to the front lines and says, make sure that man dies. It's craziness. We, We dive right into 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'm going to read this to you. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, a, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat, uh, it, it used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan. So Nathan, his friend, being obedient to the Lord, comes and tells the story. Right. David hears the story and thinks that this is a true story. He becomes livid and says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan says, that man is you. Now, I want to take a moment and just... Look at David's response here in verse 13 of chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, why is that little tag there significant? Because according to the law, David didn't just sin against God. He committed a sin against the law, which called for him to be killed so the expectation here when somebody acted like this was that they would die very different than under the new covenant the old covenant but God gives an exemption here God says you will not die for what you have done right now this sets the stage for us in Psalm 51 uh uh, if you have your uh, papers there, I'm going to read through this, and then I'm going to talk uh, just a co- couple of quick points, and then I want to take a little bit of time to close with communion. So uh, uh, beginning in verse 1, by the law, he should, oh, I'm sorry, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David's response to God Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So, I have just a a, a few applications that I, I think maybe just uh, maybe even just to look at like a process here. So, uh, at some point in your life, perhaps you have. Uh, fallen short in a way that feels massively detrimental or maybe that day will come, right? So what is the process that David walks through that takes him from the place of uh, judgment to the place of forgiveness, from the place of God coming and saying, woe unto you to the place where Jesus would say, that's a man after my own heart. And I think that that process is found right here in Psalm uh, 51. So the first one is that David, uh, or the first one is to have a pre-established relationship with God. Have a pre-established relationship with God. David knew God intimately. God chose him as a child, protected him from Goliath. Uh, protected him from Saul. He gave him victory after victory. Can I tell you that your relationship with God is not defined by your failures? Your relationship with God should be defined by your interaction with God. And if the only time you interact with God is when you're in trouble, then you're going to have a very poor relationship with God. Uh, if you go back up there, up there to uh, verse 1, Right? He says, uh, uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. How could he say that? Because he was intimately familiar with a God that was filled with mercy. So immediately in his failure, in his sin, what did he do? He said, I serve a God that cares, I serve a God that is filled with compassion. And love. He is a merciful God. The second thing. Do not make excuses. I think this is really important. Our uh, nature. Can be one to create justification. Now. Now we as, as as beings need, need justification but the only one that can justify us is god so we're fully aware of this this is this is why people who are believers and people who are atheists or they're in any religion they all want to create some justification for why they're on the path that they're on because hardwired inside of us when we lay down at night and we begin to go to sleep we need to be okay with ourselves and that intimate relationship with God that we have in that first step brings us to the place where we understand I don't have the capacity to justify my actions only God has that capacity and so I can't make excuses for the way that I'm living When I'm walking in sin, when I'm doing things that don't line up with the Word of God, can can I tell you that when you are living in a way that doesn't line up with the Word of God, that means that you are doing things that do not line up with the Word of God. It's really simple. And you can sit here and go, well, the times are different. God says, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. Uh, I, I know what I'm talking about. I would not have instructed you to live in a way you did not have the capacity to live. I would not have given you an expectation that I did not believe that you could uh, walk out. And as humans, we want to justify our sin. And David could have done that. David could have said, I'm the king. You don't know the stress that I go through. He could have laid out a hundred excuses, but he did not. In verses 3 and 4, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you... You may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is what he says. He says, let me do you a favor here, God. I want you to know that I acknowledge what I've done so you are justified to do whatever you will do. That's the only justification that I can extend is to acknowledge that God is justified to do what he does. And to bring any judgment that he would bring because I have failed. And in order to get to that place where Jesus says, a man after my own heart, a woman after my own heart, in order to get to that place, we have to be people who do not make excuses. The third thing is we have to feel remorse. Can I I tell you that while it might be true when someone makes the statement following grievous sin... It's under the blood. God's forgiven me. I'm not going to dwell. I'm not not dealing with all that, right? While that might be true, the pattern that is established in Scripture is that sin brings shame, which brings remorse and then freedom. I want you to look uh, at uh, uh, verses 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does he say? He says, I am fully aware that that if I come in right now and make a blood sacrifice to cover my sins, that's not good enough yet. The first thing that has to happen is I have to be in a position of having a broken and contrite spirit. I have to be in a place where I am remorseful for what I did. And I'll I'll tell you, like this is a great measuring tool that, that I use when I'm navigating a situation with somebody who is walking through some type of sin. I want to see, are they broken are they in a position where their spirit is contrite before the Lord? Because that is the sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord. It is not a place where we live out our days. It is a season that we walk in. David goes on to experience great joy in the remainders uh, portions of his life. He does walk through difficult times, but he goes on to move past this moment. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, for God Godly grief produces uh, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so there's a difference between worldly grief, that, that shame that we have in the world, and then when we bring that shame to the Lord, it brings us to salvation. If we don't bring it to the Lord, we know, doctors will tell you, stress will kill you. Living with the stress of the failures of your life will absolutely end your life. Living with regret will end your life in a physical manner. But when we have a God that we come to, we come to with a contrite heart, a contrite spirit, we position ourselves for forgiveness. And the fourth part of the process is to ask to be forgiven. verse 7 and 8 purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let the bones that you have broken rejoice he says let those parts of me that you have crushed down let them rejoice not let them cry out in agony let them rejoice it's important to go to the Lord, to ask to be forgiven. And then the final one is, and I think this is something that we miss. We get to the forgiveness stage, but let me tell you something. If you're not asking God to restore that which has been torn down and broken, you are missing out. And David knows the merciful God that he serves isn't just a God that will forgive, but he's a God that will give back. He'll restore Verses uh, 10 and 12 here. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Bring me back to a place where I am in right relationship with you. He says, renew a steadfast spirit. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit. Restore the joy of your salvation. Can I tell you, you, if, if you want to tap into joy, you should learn how to tap into the joy of your salvation. If you have genuinely had a salvation experience, you have a genuine point of contact in your life that you can turn back to and find joy. And he says, grant me a willing spirit that will sustain me. I'll close here by reading this in 1 Kings 15. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. You know what's really powerful here? The child that was born out of sin, the child that was born out of sin becomes the next king. And it's the bloodline that the father chose to use to bring the Messiah. Do you think God restored some things to David? Absolutely. Do you think that God has the capacity to look at the enemy and say that thing that you that you meant for destruction, not only am I redeeming the people engaged in it, but there's legacy that's coming. There's greatness that's coming out of that. That moment of sin that was meant to, de- to defile and destroy, they repented, they, ha- they have come to the place, I'm ready to restore, I'm ready to set them back into destiny, and their children's children's children will reap the benefits of it. But it all begins with that moment. That moment of coming before him. Psalm 139, search me, see if there is any way in me. What if David had prayed that prayer and discovered this truth before Nathan was sent by the Lord? This passage might have even read all the way, all the days of his life, period. Nothing said he had to walk through it. God's faithful to redeem and restore when we do, but he hopes that we won't. So what I'd like to do as we close today is I'd like to end with communion. And, you know, we do this every Sunday here at City Church, and we do it to remember the sacrifice. I'd like to do it a little bit different today. I'd like for us to take the elements. Uh, we'll begin with the front rows like we usually do, make our way back to our seats. And I'd like for you to just take a moment reflecting, yes, on the cross, the resurrection is coming. We're 40 days out. Resurrection is on the horizon. Right? Sin is defeated. Jesus is alive. He's coming back. But today, in meditating on that sacrifice, could we say, Father, what in me needs to change? What is that thing right now that might be there that's preventing me from stepping into my great destiny you've called me to?